0: Medicine has always been uncomfortable with the idea of spirit, the idea of the mind. The brain is just a complex machine. I disagree. I think that the traditions and the history of the use of these things, these things are medicines for the spirits. They're medicines for the soul.
1: Dr. Dennis McKenna is a pioneer in the field of enthopharmacology and psychoactive substances. He's notable due to his comprehensive research into the indigenous uses and biochemistry of psychoactive plants. Dennis McKenna's work has been instrumental in understanding the connections between neurochemistry and consciousness, particularly through his research on DMT. Dennis, by the way, shares the same last name as Terence McKenna because he's Terence McKenna's brother. In this conversation, we delve into the often ignored deceptive aspects of psychedelics. That is, the impact that these substances have on both introspective as well as extrospective processes. The interplay between self-reflection and environmental perception is a crucial theme in Dr. McKenna's work, and it's one that people don't seem to ask him much about, making this a distinctive conversation today. During this podcast, you'll notice that Dennis and I bond over sharing personal stories that we don't talk about much publicly. It was an honor to speak to Dennis, and I hope this isn't the last time. I look forward to speaking with him again. Enjoy this conversation today with Dr. Dennis McKenna. Are you someone who wakes up much later in the day? Are you a night owl?
0: I don't wake up later, but uh, I need time to get on track. You know, I've got to get up and do my routines. That's why I don't like to do podcasts or any call before you know, before eleven a.m., because I spend most of my day staring at screens, I just can't face it earlier than that. <laughs>
1: uh, I see. What is it that you do in your routine?
0: Well, I do. I do a lot of podcasts. I I do email, uh, and I I do stuff for you know. So I have this McKenna Academy, <clears throat> this nonprofit, uh, which uh, takes up. I mean, technically. uh You know, it's a hobby. I mean, I I, it takes up a lot of time. You know that it's it's almost like a job, except I don't get paid. (laughs) It's a passion, Uh, but yeah. So that that's how it is. I get up, I have breakfast, I get down here, check my email, and then usually there's a bunch of emails and stuff, and uh, you know, not exciting really, but got to push it forward. You know.
1: So no ritualistic micro dosing or heroic dosing on a daily basis?
0: That's not so much, not on a regular basis. You know, I mean, I don't micro dose. Uh, I've tried micro dosing. I, uh, you know, I have done, but I don't do it on a regular basis. I don't see much benefit from it for me personally. And heroic dosing, you know, is a special thing. It's fairly rare. You've got to, you know, you have to find the right circumstances. It's all about set and setting, as we know.
1: Did you at one point have a regimen for it? For instance, you would say, okay, this is my yearly review or my bi-yearly review. Let me get some advice from another state.
0: Uh, yeah, sometimes it doesn't come up as a regular thing that I schedule. Uh, it comes up usually in the context of being somewhere that I might want to do it, you know, that. A good a good uh set, setting for doing it but I haven't actually done any psychedelics since before covid so uh it's been a while I am overdue uh I am overdue for that
1: do you see yourself actually as overdue meaning that like I need to get back to it I should get back to it
0: I, I need you know, I need to yeah I need to go to the well and drink again you know uh yeah I mean I don't need to, but I want to. I feel like it's good to, uh, you know, touch bases with the uh, source of the wisdom or, you know, once in a while. Uh, uh, fairly regular. I'm not one of these people that say, when you get the message, hang up the phone. I mean, I you can say that, but I, I hung up the phone, but now I need to pick up the phone <laughs> and reconnect.
1: What would be the truth behind that you should hang up once you receive the message?
0: Well, I think Ram Doss or uh uh maybe it was Alan Watts, Alan Watts, I think, said that. Well, his idea was that you know, you learn from psychedelics, you get a message, you you get like, you know, you 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 learn from the experience. Once you've had the experience. You don't need to keep talking on the phone. You know, you hang it up because you integrate the message and then you've got it. But these folks, uh, Alan Watts, uh, people like uh, uh, Houston Smith and other people, (coughs) they they have a different perspective on uh, psychedelics than maybe I do. You know, in the sense that they think that you know, a, a lot of these people are dead, so I don't want to put words in their mouth. But
1: they, sure. sure.
0: Basically they think that, uh, you know, psychedelics can let you have a mystical experience, you know, or a, a, a profoundly transformative mystical experience, but it's it doesn't stick, you know? I mean, you have it, you see the possibilities, but if you really want it, have that, if you want to integrate that spiritual practice into your life, you need a spiritual practice, you know, you need a religion, you need to practice yoga, you need to practice regular meditation or something like that. And and so in some sense, they devalue, in my opinion, they devalue the psychedelic experience, you know, you can pursue psychedelics, as a spiritual practice it's a discipline it's just as hard as any other discipline as you're if you're really committed to it you know uh so my perspective is well yeah you know, I, I sort of share the perspective of indigenous people and many people who say these things are teachers you you know you learn from the your teachers you know why would you turn your back on your teacher You know, why would you hang up the phone on your teacher? You know, you need to connect with them occasionally and say, hey, what's up, man? You know, what else you got to show me? So that's kind of my perspective. I think it's good to check in. I don't think we should presume that once you've had one or two or a few psychedelic experiences, you've learned all there is to learn, you know, from that source. I mean one of the stronger lessons that I take that from psychedelics that is I'm constantly reminded of every time I take psychedelics is uh to remember how little we actually know you know and whatever you might learn from psychedelic experience or any other experience but from a psychedelic experience there's always a lot that remains unknown. I mean, that's just the nature of knowledge. You know, our knowledge is always limited. So to say that, you know, okay, I got the message. I'm going to hang up the phone and not listen anymore. I mean, it's no different than rejecting a mentor or a teacher or, you know, someone that you might look up to.
1: So my understanding of that isn't to hang up permanently, but... To say okay let me integrate let me now live my life because there's a message but the message needs to be nurtured as well like you get a seed and you need to water it with that's
0: exactly it
1: with not being inebriated
0: that's how i, that's how I relate to it that's right
1: some of the examples you gave the indigenous people they do so but ensconced in a community in a religion that's like millennia old and often There's now this new culture of taking it and taking it once a day for 30 days straight or doing it alone. Do you feel like the lessons that you get are of a different sort in the isolated case than in the communal case?
0: Well, yes, I do. I mean, in in these indigenous communities, they they take – it's usually done, it's almost always done in a group situation, you know – the exception being if if you're a shaman, if you're a curadero if you're in training, if you're trying to do dietas and learn how to do it, then you might go into US isolation and do it repeatedly, you know, over a short period of time, and that that is really a discipline. I mean, that is really learning how to use it so that you can then go back and and. uh you know, be the facilitator for, for people in group session. So that's a different thing. Usually in indigenous cultures, it is a group session, group kind of thing. And it's not necessarily, I mean, you you can't make a, you know, you can't make a rule about this because the way people use it differs. But for example, Uh, you know, it's not necessarily something we do this every Saturday, or we do this once a month or sometimes, usually they do it when there's a need, you know, when the group has a question that needs to be answered or for healing, you know, okay, there is this person with an illness that needs healing, so they get the group together. And then the focus is on that, you know, and back, uh, you know, uh in indigenous cultures it's often the shaman takes the medicine not necessarily everybody in the group you know now with uh, tourism and all that people are you know people go down there with the expectation that they're going to take the medicine it didn't used to be that way you know there would be a group would gather there would be perhaps a person or several people that needed some sort of healing the shaman would take the medicine not everybody there sometimes the the person getting the treatment would be given the medicine but the 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 use of the uh of the medicine it's used for diagnosis basically and for for diagnosis and then through the visionary state the shaman gets information from whatever source it comes from but they get information about what to do how to how to treat the person or and it could be other things too you know it could be okay what what's the where's the game going to be next spring what are the best hunting spots all kinds of things but these are things of concern to the community And the other side, the way people might use it, is a much more personal thing. It's about internal self-examination, personal growth, exploration of consciousness, if you will, Uh, much more a self-focused kind of activity where the person is using the medicine to, to connect through an altered state, essentially to connect with another uh I mean with another aspect of themselves, you know, that it's not normally accessible.
1: Do you feel, Dennis, that your yearning to go back to what you have tried pre COVID comes from a need, like there's a question that you're trying to solve, or is it more just you can get a massage because it's a maintenance massage, you feel like, you know, I'm a bit stiff. Yeah,
0: it's more it's more of a check in. You know, I mean it's time to check in. I have taken these things many times various kinds and uh and but i i think it's important to maintain the connection but and things do come up but it's not like but it's not like something comes up and and you know i, I mean it might be something that i say yes i really need to take the psychedelic to reflect on this or that but for me it, it's more of a check-in
1: can you talk about why you wrote the book Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss?
0: Basically, uh you know, the the book is a personal story uh and uh you know, I I I I mean, my brother and I have have become like almost mythical figures, you know, legendary figures because he's told his story in True Hallucinations primarily is where he told that personal story. I wanted to tell my story and I wanted to tell the story, not just about our experiment at La Charrera, our trip to La Charrera in 1971, which is what True Hallucinations is basically about, but I wanted to write the story of our lives. So it was an autobiography, you know, it was a personal memoir. And I just wanted to tell my side of it in a sense. Not that he didn't represent it well, but I have, I have a different perspective, and uh, so that's why I wrote it. You know, I just wanted to tell my own my own story. There's a new edition. You may be aware, right? Tenth uh, anniversary edition or whatever. But there's so it's the same book that I published in 2012, but now. Uh, I have a publisher, Synergetic Press, and I wrote a 50-page uh, additional chapter for it. So it's 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 not all the old stuff. It's all the old stuff plus some new stuff, you know. And that was kind of a perspective on the last 20 years or so since the book was well, the book was published in 2012, but. The narrative story ends around 2000, you know, when my brother passed on. So so it's useful to read the second edition. And then you have to buy it again, of course.
1: And <laughs> uh, was there anything that you weren't able to include that you wanted to for whatever reasons, like length, or the editor just said it's not pertinent?
0: There were a few things I left out. Uh, length wasn't really a concern so much. In a, in a bit, it was, but there were a few things. I left out because my family, you know, uh, were were not happy with some of the things I put in it initially, and uh, uh, and so I left them out.
1: They felt it was too personal. Like you shouldn't reveal that part of our family.
0: That was their that was their perspective. Yeah, I disagree, but out of respect, I it, it didn't really interfere with the uh with the with the story too much so out of respect i did it not that it helped i mean they i made changes that they had insisted on and it didn't make any difference you know they still hate me
1: largely (laughs) i didn't know that yeah well at least they got to read it
0: i don't even know if they did read it i mean i think some of they read parts of it, they read the parts they didn't like. I don't know if they've ever read it from cover to cover, because I think if they had, they would see that, that you know there's really nothing there. I mean, in no way did I make Terrence look bad or me, or any of the family, you know, I mean, the family is uh, almost not mentioned, other than they are mentioned, but there's no long narrative about it. I think if they had read the book as I revised it, uh, they wouldn't have so much, uh, uh, you know, they they wouldn't feel so negatively about it, but they they seem to be in a Place of uh you know our minds are made up. Don't confuse us with facts, you know. So this is kind of a touchy subject. We don't really need to go into this. that's painful. It's painful, and yeah. uh, you know it hurts me. And I guess it hurts them too. uh But you know this happens in
2: families,
0: and I think part of the take-home lesson is uh don't write memoirs
1: (laughs) yeah keep them sterile
0: you're not going to be able to you know no family is going to be happy it's a tricky thing and uh, i have made efforts to reach out and uh, you know but that has been that has been responded to uh so so That's why I've said, you know, I I told them effectively, I've said, you know, well, if if bridges have been burned, they're not burned on my side of the river. So, you know, anytime you want to reach out, I'm here.
1: Sorry if this is personal. I guess I'm asking for personal reasons for myself, but tell us about ESPD 55.
0: Yeah, so if people go to the, uh, if you go to the website
1: link will be on screen and then we'll also show it
0: if you go to the mckenna academy and 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 uh go to espd there's a tab for it actually on the website you can look at espd 55 and espd 50 both all the videos from both symposia are still online and uh, will be hopefully forever and uh you can you can uh you can put in your email and you can create an account essentially an email and a password and then it's completely open there's there's no paywall or anything you can uh, watch all the videos from both of the conferences
1: and there's some good stuff there so it's a conference espd 55 is a conference
0: right and espd 50 was a another conference it it happened before it happened five years earlier in 2017 uh and that was kind of freelance there was no McKinnon academy it was just me and some friends and everything fell in place in 2017 we had a place to do it a beautiful country house in in the uk mm-hmm. and, uh, i had a, a team of people who stepped up and helped organize it and and they were both they were both uh, lovely lovely conferences, and we and we published uh, we published the the proceedings for twenty seventeen. Uh, you can order those from Synergetic Press. We published actually a double volume. We published the
1: Synergetic Six- Press.
0: Yeah, a- as a. Uh, as a box set. So we published the 1967 conference and the 2017 conference. And then this year the and and last year's conference will be published also as a separate volume. It'll be out either later this year or early in 2024. So that's that's in the pipeline and Synergetic Press is uh is the publisher for both these and, and also for the Brotherhood the new edition of the and I want to I want to kind of plug Synergetic because they're great people and they're really trying to be kind of the uh, the publisher for psychedelic literature of all kinds. So they published some some wonderful stuff. Uh, besides this ESPD, they published a, a, a book by Alexander Schulgen, which is called The Nature of Drugs. Which was is fairly recent, and that that was actually his lecture notes from his course that he taught at the University of California at, in the eighties, and it's a it's a great lecture. I mean, was a wonderful lecture. What else have they published? They published uh, another one called uh, uh, "The Mind of Plants" or something like that. Just have a look website synergeticpress.com they do good they publish some really interesting stuff
1: we'll put the link to the academy as well as espd55.com as well as synergetic in the description so if you had an unlimited budget wand for your next conference what would you include
0: well it would be it would be an extension of and the whole idea of the espd you know, ethnopharmacologic search for psychoactive drugs is there are a lot of things out there that are not well investigated, you know, so sort of one of the thrusts of the of the conference is to explore some of these obscure uh, corners of ethnopharmacology, you know, mm-hmm. less investigated psychoactive drugs, even though, you know, in a conference like this, there were a lot of things that we that we presented that are well-known, like ayahuasca and, and the snuffs and different things. But there's a, still a lot to be discovered, a lot of exploration, many PhDs worth uh, of exploration on some of these obscure psychoactives that people haven't really investigated. Of course, there's no budget for this to actually or very little support for this people who are, you know, I mean, you have to, if you're in an academic context, you've got to find support for this kind of stuff and uh, you can do it, but there hasn't been, uh, you know, there there are not actually departments that really are going to apportion money to Uh, graduate students and so on to do this but much of this is it's important to do you know uh, because you never know i mean we know what the main psychedelics are you know we pretty much know the plants we know the chemistry we know what's out there once in a while something pops up that is lesser known and often there's novel chemistry involved and when there's novel chemistry involved there's often novel pharmacology, so you know these discoveries can lead can open the door to you know new mechanisms, new classes of drugs. Good example here is uh, Salvia divinorum. Uh, you don't hear much about Salvia divinorum, but for a while it was popular, uh, and you could buy extracts in head shops. It's not illegal most places. Are you familiar with
1: the yes. plan? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean the thing is it's it's like its own built-in uh uh you know it has its own built-in safeguards against abuse because for most people, once is enough, you know, the effects are so bizarre that people just can't relate to it, you know, and, and that's fine. Some people like it, but it's rare. But the interesting thing is about that molecule, it's a whole new class of molecules. It's not serotonergic. It, it uh, interacts with the kappa opiate receptors, and it interacts very selectively with the, that class of receptors. There are about four types of opiate receptors in the body, and kappa opiate receptors, one of them. Salvia divinorum is the most selective compound for the Kappa receptors that's ever been discovered. Why is that important? Well, because, you know, as a scaffold for, well, for one thing, the states of mind, you know, the altered states it, 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 it creates are not pleasant, but they may be useful therapeutically. And then the molecule itself could be a scaffold for different derivatives that might have different effects. So the, the person that, uh...
1: hear that sound. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories.
0: So this is a good example of the of what you might call the value of ethnopharmacology, right? Because uh, the guy who elucidated a lot of the pharmacology of Salvia Divinorum, a fellow named Brian Roth, who is the head of the
1: Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to dot com slash everything and use the code everything.
0: I am a psychoactive drug screening program uh, at the University of North Carolina. He elucidated the pharmacology. The chemistry was already known, but he showed that it was this kappa opiate receptor. And he told me, you know, if I had set out to design a drug that was selective for the kappa opioid receptor, you know, using computer-aided drug design and structure-activity and all that, it would not look like it would not look like salvia dividorum. He said, "This stuff looks like cholesterol. <laughs> you know, yeah. it doesn't have nitrogen, it doesn't have any of the characteristics, and yet here it is." So. I think what this demonstrates is that nature is got a few surprises for us. You know, nature is cleverer than chemists. You know? And so we should we should look to nature for these things.
1: As far as I know, MDMA is a designer drug. It was designed. It's not something that's found as a derivative in a plant, but I could be right. incorrect about that. Firstly, is that correct? And do you consider it a psychedelic?
0: Well, MDMA, yes, MDMA is a is a is not a natural product, you know, but it's very similar to natural products, and it's very similar to mescaline, you know. In, in uh, mul- many of the compounds that Shulgin developed are mescaline analogs, and in medicinal chemistry, this is what you do, you know. Often, you take a natural compound and then you tweak it. In various ways and you see how it differs this is very commonly done uh i mean it's not whether the drug is you know a cancer drug or an antiviral whatever you're looking for you look at different derivatives you do what's called structure activity relationships what's cool about the psychedelics is there's only one way to investigate the structure activity you make all these derivatives and then you bioassay them carefully, because there's no, you know, animal tests are not going to tell you much. There's only one way to really evaluate their effect. This is why Shulgin was such a pioneer, you know, because he made all these things, but then he took them under very careful conditions. He kept extensive notes. He Shared them with a, a, a group of psychonauts who were also experienced. Collected that information, you know. And you're probably familiar with the books he has published: T Call and P Call. Uh, you know these. You know those books. No. Okay. Well, it's out. They're out there. T Call is is stands for tryptamines I have known and loved, and P Call stands for phenethylamines I have known and loved. And uh, those are those are landmark publications in the world of uh, psychedelic psychopharmacology because, you know, I mean, they're unique. The, The first half of each book is kind of a lightly fictionalized story about Sasha, you know, and his experiences the people he met, the work he did, and so on. So it's a novel. But the second half of each book is a list of all these compounds, their chemistry, how to make them, and the subjective experiences from, from his own trip notes. So this these are also available, I think, through uh, Synergetic Press now. But the uh, the PDF versions are on arrowhead.org. Uh, at least they were. Uh, and is another organization that I like to promote. I mean, it's a great resource for best online resource for psychoactive drugs of any kind that that exists. Most of them I'm not interested in, many of them I've never even heard of, but there's a vast amount of information on that. So anyway, so anyway, back to your question. So MDMA is a pretty close to mescaline and the the ring structures of mdma and a lot of Shulgin's uh uh mescaline analogs uh, bear resemblances to essential oils you know uh, uh phenylpropanoids which have different ring structures and it's the ring the ring structures that that are the main po- component of the Uh, of the structure activity work. So in some sense, they're very closely related to natural products. You can take something like myristicin, for example, which comes from nutmeg. If you add an ammonia to the right place, to the side chain, you've got a psychoactive, you know, you have one of these derivatives. So people can read uh, Picol or they can read some of shulgin's other other works and see how he did this now is MDMA a psychedelic uh actually it depends on how you want to how you want to define psychedelic uh my definition I like It's. I mean it's I like a strict definition I mean my mind a strict definition of a psychedelic is something that is an agonist at the five HT two A receptors. So, five HT, the serotonin two A receptors, is seems to be the target for what you might call the classic psychedelics: LSD, DMT, mescaline, even uh, you know psilocybin. All of these are five HT two A receptor agonists. So, under this strict sort of definition of what a psychedelic is you know which i like for convenience more than anything to kind of define this class of drugs and in that sense mdma is not a psychedelic because it does work on serotonin but it doesn't work on these 5ht2a receptors what it actually works on are the serotonin uptake transporters the same site that ssris interact with and, uh,
1: you know mdma and globally by- sorry yes. globally or like selectively for mdma
0: well selectively yeah it's not it's not that selective it's a kind of a, a all over the brain where wherever the serotonin receptors are and uh, one way to think of it the the ssris uh SSRI stands for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor and it blocks the reuptake of serotonin from the synapse right in the synapse serotonin is released neurotransmitter is released it goes to the postsynaptic membrane it binds to the receptors and it creates whatever effect it does SSRIs block that it's like they it's not taken back up so stays at a higher level in the synapse, and so it has the putative antidepressant effect. MDMA has the opposite effect, right? MDMA binds to those serotonin transporters, but where SSRIs will essentially jam them closed, MDMA will jam them open. So if SSRIs are a vacuum cleaner that takes it back out of the synapse, MDMA floods the synapse, the synapse on a you know on on a global scale with serotonin. So it, it 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 is not strictly a psychedelic in that sense, but it is it is psychoactive. You get the typical effects of MDMA, which often are associated with things like euphoria. You know, it's the feel good drug, right? serotonin is the feel good neurotransmitter one of a couple of them like dopamine is the other one dopamine is another conversation <laughs> but so in that sense it's not strictly speaking a psychedelic but it is psychoactive and it's uh, it's therapeutically quite useful for trauma and uh for uh you know for for sort of emotional puts you in a very open and receptive emotional place. So it's couples therapy and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. And it's also my understanding that there aren't designer drugs of MDMA that are anywhere near as effective as MDMA. Is that true? And if it's true, like why is it much more easy to make a designer version of LSD? I think there was one called 1P LSD or 10P LSD, something like that but then there's not a version of MDMA.
0: Oh, there are many versions of MDMA, you know, there there are lots of, there are lots of analogs of MDMA. Some are better, some are worse, you know? I mean, this, this, again, this comes back to structure activity relationship. And MDMA just happens to be the one that's been most popular, the one that's known and the one that, but there are other, Drugs that act similarly to MDMA and they have a similar effect. Uh, again, reading peakall, you know they're all there. You can look on Arrowwood, they're all listed there. Uh-huh. Uh, some are, some are, some of Shulgin's compounds are more like, like classical true psychedelics. I mean, they interact with these 5HT2A receptors like mescal does, but but some of these are uh are more like mdma you know and there's a whole alphabet soup <laughs> if you will i mean there's mda there's mdma there's mmda there's ddm you know <laughs> it's, it's 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 a lot of different a lot of different ones and it's true of all these other things you know there are many there are many analogs of lsd now too that are similar to lsd but uh but are some are short acting, and uh, some are, you know, let more. They have more of this intactogenic quality. So there's, you know, if you're a medicinal chemist, this is a great area to to work in because there's, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of uh, molecular templates to work from. And uh, you never know when the next MDMA will come along that could, but if, you know, MDMA, for what it does, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good molecule. In, In other words, it's hard to think how you could improve on that structure, you know, and In in terms of the classical psychedelics, I think that, uh, you know, again, with DMT, 5-methoxy-DMT, psilocybin, psilocin, there are many derivatives of these things, you know. And, again, T-call is the the source to look at for this. Uh, But I'm kind of amused, you know, uh, in some ways psilocybin and the active form of psilocybin, which is psilocin, right? Psilocybin is converted to psilocin in the body. It's psilocin that's interacting with the 5-HT2A receptors. It's hard to imagine a molecule that's more suited to to human physiology. You know, it's non-toxic. The duration of action makes it easy to use in clinical study, uh, clinical setting uh, it's very compatible with human metabolism it's a profound psychedelic you know uh, so a lot of these companies that are trying to develop analogs of psilocybin and psilocin in my opinion much of it is directed toward you know they want to be able to patent something you know so they want a derivative that could be patented Silicon, thankfully, has been in the public domain for since 1958. Well, so, you know, Shogun uh, uh, Hoffman, when he discovered it, never tried to patent it. And so these companies are kind of, you know, showing their cards in some ways. Well, we have to come up with something proprietary, you know, some analog of Silicin. But chances are it's not going to be better than Silicin in terms of its action.
1: Now, in terms of the medicinal benefit of certain mushroom supplements, is there a broad difference between mycelium and the fruiting bodies?
0: Uh, there is. There is often, uh, there's more of the compounds in the fruiting bodies. You know, you, you you can grow, you can, I mean, if you're making standardized extracts, you can grow mycelium. The the material will be there, the alkaloids will be there, and you can standardize them. But uh, you know the mushrooms. There's something about that transition in the life cycle of the mushroom that leads to synthesis of higher levels of uh, these tryptamines. And this is this is generally true with other uh, secondary products that mushrooms make you know, like the beta-glucans, for example, which are the the uh, the uh, medicinal uh, part, the medicinal components of these immune-stimulating mushrooms, these functional medicinal mushrooms. A lot of it comes down to uh, beta-glucans. The mushrooms will have higher levels than the mycelium. It's just a fact.
1: Uh-huh. Now, let's say... Dennis, we were to play this visual game where you imagine the ethnopharmacology as a jigsaw puzzle, and of course there are unknown unknowns, but I'm going to ask for known unknowns. Where's the largest gap in this puzzle in terms of our knowledge right now? In terms of the knowledge or in terms of significance?
0: Well, I I I mean it, you know, it, it's hard to it's hard to say what the significance uh, of an of an unknown is you know until you look into it it's kind of like salvia divinorum you know until you actually take a close look you have this weird Mexican mint with very strange psychopharmacological properties uh-huh. so you've got that and then when people looked into it it turns out you've got this very interesting molecule. What's fascinating for me uh, in this field right now and which we were not able to uh, to do with ESPd55. So this will have to wait for espd 60 I guess. but uh, uh, I think the there's a, about 20 25 species of putatively hallucinogenic or psychoactive fish that uh, we couldn't get anyone to come talk about. There's not a lot of work done on them, but I think that's fascinating. And uh, again, I think this is this is a perfect example. So we know these are out there. We don't know, all we have are uh, anecdotal reports, you know, when people accidentally eat these things, usually they accidentally eat these things. And then they have this experience. They're not planning to trip, but, uh, you know, it ends up that that they do. Some of these produce extremely bizarre uh, uh, kinds of experiences, not that pleasant, uh, sometimes lasting days. But the point is that there's novel chemistry there. There has to be novel chemistry there. It's worth looking into. You know, this is something because, again, the idea is you never know when a new molecule is going to surface that actually has some potential use, you know, so you've got to look into it. It's tricky with these fish because a lot of them, uh, it seems to be a seasonal thing, you know, you don't get the effect every time you eat them, you know. so. interesting. It's most likely it's a bacteria or it's something else that's in the fish or it's something the fish is eating that is then sequestered into the flesh and so it's it isn't always there, but when it's there, people you know and interestingly, for example, one of them is uh, it's called the Salima Porgy. I forget the uh, I forget the scientific name of it offhand. But it's from the Mediterranean, and uh, it actually, it turns out that the Romans used to use it as a recreational drug. You know, they would take it at these orgies and banquets that they had, and people get absolutely plastered. And, uh, you know, some people, contemporary people have described the effects of, you know, they went to some event or something, they consumed one of these fish and then they had a profound experience and they were driving and they were being chased by, you know, 18 foot tall tarantulas and that kind of thing. Not exactly my idea of a good trip, but, uh, you know, there's no. It's <laughs> transformative. Yeah, so
1: you're this, not the same person after.
0: Fascinating that. area, this, this, um, this uh, ich- ichthyo chemistry, I guess you could call it.
1: Yeah. It seems like psychedelics have both a neurological benefit, so increases neuroplasticity. Sometimes that's good. Often it's good. And there's always edge cases where it's not. And psychologically, where often you have a positive experience and often, I don't know about just as often, but a sizable portion doesn't. Do you think that There can be a drug that's designed or it could be from plants that can produce the positive effects, either neurologically or psychologically, but without the hallucinogenic effects. Or somehow that part and parcel of the psychological transformation.
0: Well, this is is an area of controversy right now. There are a number of companies that are trying to design the psychedelic experience out of the psychedelic. They're trying to create non-psychedelic psychedelics
1: and this is controversial because well
0: because they say you know the psychedelic experience is actually an adverse side effect we just need to get rid of that so that it can do whatever it does on the neural level you know rearranging uh, synaptic connectivity stimulating synaptogenesis all the things that it does that we talk about under this sort of rubric of neurotoxicity, that you don't really need the psychedelic experience to uh, have this this corrective effect. Uh, I think they're barking up the wrong tree, frankly. I think that it's hard. My feeling is it's hard to separate the psychedelic experience, you know, which has often such a profound emotional and and cognitive impact which of course is reflected on the on the neural level if you take that away then you 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 take away the therapeutic effect i, I as i i believe i don't think they're going to succeed in developing a non-psychedelic psychedelic i think the whole thing is is a red herring, and I think a a false, you know, I I think it's probably not going to happen. I could be wrong. I could be proven wrong the next day. Unfortunately, I think, I mean, you know, in some ways, this, this really highlights, I think, one of the, one of the sort of unexamined assumptions in in the in the in the quest for for these compounds, which is, you know this this idea of dismissing the psychedelic experience as an un, undesirable side effect uh, is is kind of missing the point. If you design a psychedelic which lacks the psychedelic experience, it's no longer psychedelic by definition. You know, and psychedelic means mind manifesting. You know, so if you engineer the experience out of the molecule, you may have a useful molecule, but you shouldn't call it a psychedelic. You could call it a you know neuro you know plasticity stimulator or something. But I think it's also uh, I think it also highlights something about medicine and drug discovery. And and the way that medicine, even in, even in psycho, you know, psychology, psychopharmacology, medicine has always been uncomfortable with the idea of spirit, you know, the idea of the mind. I mean, the mind is inconvenient, you know, because the, the, the perspective is it's reductionist, you know, the brain is just a complex machine. Humans are just complex machines. There's no spirit involved. There's nothing beyond that involved. So if you can apply the mole- the right molecular monkey wrench, if you will, to the to the system, you can fix it. And it has nothing to do with your mind. It, the mind doesn't really exist. The spirit doesn't really exist. Well, I disagree. I think that. Uh, you know, the traditions and the history of the use of these things, these things are medicines for the spirit and the soul in a certain sense. They're medicines for the soul. I think it's completely misguided and unfortunately greed-driven to uh try to discover these molecules that lack the psych that you know out of yeah. which the psychedelic experience has been engineered, has been has been uh, eliminated. I mean-
1: I could imagine it being beneficial at the neuronal level. So for instance, there's BDNF, I believe it's called, which promotes growth of neurons. Right, right. But it's not psychoactive. And so I right. could imagine the mending it so that it's no longer a psychedelic by the definition of, it may still be a psychedelic by your definition if it binds to 5 a but doesn't produce the psychoactive effects, but not by the traditional root of the word.
0: Uh, that, that's entirely possible. I mean, it may tweak different projects, like different different components, like the the brain-derived neurotrophic growth factor and all that. That's fine, and it may have a therapeutic effect. They should not call it a psychedelic. That is misrepresentation. Yeah.
1: I imagine they wouldn't, because they would want to distance themselves from it and be like, look, we got all the benefits without being this. That is bad. The psychedelic is bad, or potentially. Because I know right. that that's the perception you have
0: all them. the benefits except the psychedelic experience you know which is not viewed as a benefit so that's a major benefit for most people the psychedelic experience you're taking that away from people you know but it may have a it may it may have applications i'm not saying that this work is completely useless it may have applications there may be people that for one reason or another, can't take psychedelics or can't deal with psychedelic experiences or should not have psychedelic experiences, and that may be fine for them. Uh, so there will be probably, you know, useful uh, therapeutic drugs that come out of this research. I just think it's it's disingenuous to say, to represent this as a, as a psychedelic, you know, that and if we've eliminated this undesirable side effect. That's fine. Don't call it a psychedelic. Yeah. That's representation.
1: I don't think you like the philosophy that undergirds the production of this, that they are saying it's something to do with we're trying to help humanity, but there's something that firstly is about money. There's nothing wrong inherently about a profit motive. It's just that there's something Avaricious when it comes to tens of millions and billions. There also seems to be a diminutive attitude that they have toward pre-modern cultures when it comes to medicine, despite them taking inspiration from it.
0: I think so. I think so. You know. But then on the other hand, I mean, yeah, everything you say is true, and uh, and uh, I I sort of take a dim view of it. But I'm also a scientist, you know, so I am not against science exploring these things because you never know until you do it where i mean there may be surprises you know mm-hmm. and some, some useful compounds may come out of this but they should be represented honestly you could say well yeah this this compound was developed as a result of psychedelic research it's you know a variant of psychedelic molecules but it's not a psychedelic you know and it may have it may have applications. That's okay. Uh and you can you can have a profit motive and you can also want to you know you can have an altruistic motive. I mean, I don't think every you know, every effort in drug development that, you know, whether it's whatever the therapeutic targets, the people that are doing it are, yes, they're they're, uh, you know, they're entrepreneurs, they need to have patents, they need to create profitable medicines, but there is possibly an altruistic motive there too, you know, think. So, you know, it's a complicated, it's a complicated thing, the ethics of, in, around this is very complicated. Me, personally, I'm a traditionalist, you know, I prefer, I prefer the classic psychedelics. Even preferably in a natural form, you know, I would rather take mushrooms than psilocybin, even though there's you know very little difference subjectively between the two. And you know you have to uh, you have to really credit Hoffman uh, for discovering, characterizing psilocybin, and then all the people to come after him that have worked on that that structure and developed interesting compounds, you know?
1: Um. Hear that sound? Go to Shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories.
0: Uh but yeah, the the <laughs> the area of uh, uh this area of drug development, drug discovery, developing novel therapeutics and so on, this is very hot in in the field right now. Did you happen to go to the Psychedelic Science Conference. No, no, you heard about it, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. It was insane. <laughs> there were thirteen thousand people there, and there was a lot of good papers presented, which I have time to see most of them because there were a lot I wanted to see. But there's there's actual this is a very active area of research, uh, so you know. Who knows what will come out of it? Who knows what uh, psychedelic science in uh, 2028 or 29 will look like? Hopefully the field will continue to develop and discoveries will continue to be made.
1: I was watching a clip of you on Rogan and you were talking about, or Rogan was saying that you shouldn't be high all the time. And then you said, yeah, it's important to find your balance, go back to the center, find your baseline. I think that was your phrase and do a reality check that some people fail to do a reality check can you expand on that
0: well yeah i think uh i mean for one thing true psychedelics you can't really be high on them all the time you know in the sense that they they induce tolerance very quickly you know so if you take lsd or psilocybin or any of these every day for a few days on the, you know, you're going to get a much diminished effect unless you increase the dose substantially. So there is that, they kind of have their built in, uh, you know, safeguard against uh, mid misuse. And, you know, they're not addictive, right? I mean, these things are not addictive. They're anti-addictive in a certain sense. Most people have to, you know, kind of screw their courage up to go back and 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 take them. Uh uh but I also think that in the state itself they can tell you a lot of things. Uh you know, you can get a lot of supposed insights and, and so on. Uh but they they can be delusions. You know, I mean in some ways they encourage well they 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 stimulate funny ideas you know and that's part that's part of the fun that's part of the reason we take them is because we like funny ideas we like you know to uh, look into unexplored parts of our consciousness but you should always keep your skeptical antennas well deployed and, and well tuned for these experiences. And if something, some revelation comes out of the experience, you know, it may be true and it may not be true. Give yourself 48 hours in a sober state to reflect on it. From that perspective, does it really hold up or was this just some wild idea? You know, I mean, I, I mean, Terrence and me are, kind of textbook cases for people that didn't do that, you know, back in the day. And we got down the rabbit hole of, you know, some pretty wild ideas that in the end were not valid, you know?
1: Mm, that's extremely interesting. Was that an attitudinal difference between you and your brother? Do you feel like you were more on the side that said, okay, let's get some insight and let's give it two days to seven days. I think two days is quite short, actually, but let's say two whatever. Days,
0: you know? Well, yes and no. I mean, if you read our book, you know, we, we did this together. I was the one that was, uh, you know, sort of lost in a realm of delusion, you know. Uh, but I recovered. <laughs> Terrence was lost in a realm of delusion. In some ways, he didn't recover in, in the sense that he he stuck with these ideas and, and developed a, a career based on these ideas. And in some ways, you know, there was much of his uh, suppositions about the mushrooms, about the whole whole thing that was just not true in the end, you know? And I, I was, because I went further at, at the beginning, I was more cautious. I was after the experiment, after whatever happened to us, I was happy to be able to uh you know get my feet back on the ground. Uh and I mean I didn't give up my interest in psychedelics and I didn't stop taking psychedelics, but I was more cautious after that. Mm-hmm. And I uh, you know, I I think we just have to be careful. I mean, I, I get Emails occasionally, you know, from people that are, you know, thoroughly lost sort of in webs of delusion that they've had experiences with psychedelics and certain, you know, like cognitive or, or, you know, certain understandings or cognitive uh, frameworks, whatever you want to call it, have been. Revelations, you know, revelations in supposed insights and, uh, you know, and and they they have not reflected on it. You know, does this really make sense? And there's a tendency for, uh, you know, you have to you have to keep your your analytical uh, faculties intact. You have to be able to step away from the experience And look at it more objectively in the same way that psychedelics, one of the things they facilitate is, you know, one of the, I think one of the basis of their therapeutic usefulness is they let you step away from ordinary consciousness and examine that, examine your usual so-called default mode network framework. Psychedelics temporarily disable that. That can be very useful but it's going to reassert itself you know cuz let's face it ordinary consciousness whatever we mean by that that's where we are most of the time you know and uh, so we need to be able to function and we need to uh be able to uh uh you know sort of evaluate these rev- these revelations these insights in terms of you know some in terms of kind of consensus reality, you know, uh, do they conform with it? Because if you don't, then, it, you know, if you get lost in delusion, you're into, you know, you're off into uh, places that a uh, psychiatrist might say is uh, effectively a delusional ideation. You know, like, I am the Messiah, and I'm here to, you know, save the world, that sort of thing. Psychedelic, make you convince you that, in fact, you are. I could tell you from experience, no, you're not the Messiah, and you're not going to save the world.
2: <laughs> you know? So
1: the counterpoint would be like, well, look, society can be sick. And then there's a phrase like there's nothing healthy about being sane in a sick society, something like that. I don't buy that, I used to, but I've had my own experiences that I could tell you about some other time, terrifying, terrifying. I could say that with a small smirk, mainly because of nervousness, but also because I've had some distance from the experience, but like truly, truly terrifying experiences. Yeah. I don't subscribe to that though I used to because I was the type of person that's like, hey, you innovate. That's the whole point is you generate new ideas. It may not conform, but it's new. Yeah, but also sometimes you can generate false ideas. And it's so super easy to deceive oneself. And it sounds, it feels like you've received truths that are so true. It's remarkable. Anyhow, this is something that isn't talked about much. What I want to know is, how is it that you recognize that you're on a deceptive path? So you had to, number one, recognize that, which isn't easy because almost by definition, you don't think you're on one. So how did you recognize that? And then what did you do to pull yourself back out of it? And he said something interesting, which is like, put my feet back on the ground. He said something like that. It does feel like you're just in this wispy place where you're not centered, you're swimming in a, I'd like to say, it's like you're swimming in this whirlpool. There's a quote by Rene Descartes that said, it feels like I'm swimming interminably in a whirlpool such that I can't touch the ground nor swim to the top.
0: Exactly. So you have to give yourself a chance to get your center again after the experience, you know, without any other substances. Give yourself the 48 hours, 72 hours, whatever it is, you know, to uh, to find your center. You could also uh, ask, you know, if, if you have people around you that know, you know. That you respect, you can also kind of bounce it off them as well and say, Well, I'm having this revelation or these insights, but does that really jive with what you understand how reality is? I mean, it's interesting, you know, after uh, we did the experiment at La Chirera and we were still more or less caught in this delusional space, you know, uh, a, a, a couple months after, you know, I mean, Terrence was uh, uh, completely convinced that whatever we said we'd done at La Churera, we'd succeeded. You know, we weren't, it didn't necessarily happen on schedule, but he was convinced. And and he actually came back from Cal- from South America to California and went to visit his friends and more or less announced, you know, that we have done this thing.
1: Sorry, what is it that he was convinced of? He was convinced that you had done something?
0: Yeah, that we had succeeded that the experiment had succeeded.
1: The experiment of
0: at La Cherere, we had created this transform, you know, self-transforming uh fusion of mind and matter and all that. The point is that he went back and talked to his friends who hadn't had this experience and and, w- and more or less announced that you know we've done it and history's going to end any day now. They were like, "What? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wait a minute! <laughs> you know you're seriously divorced from reality." And yeah. it turns out they were they were right. You know, so it's good to. And the thing is, Terrence always said, and I think it's true. They make you have funny ideas. You know, they make you have interesting ideas. They give you that facility. But those ideas are sometimes valid, sometimes very interesting. Most of them are probably just delusional. But, you know, you have to look at them from an objective point of view before you can really dismiss them or accept
1: them. Uh That's interesting. So an analogy I'm making in my head right now is LLMs, like ChatGPT. They confabulate. What they'll create is... Quite creative, yes. But then sometimes they'll make up a fact confidently, and they don't know that they're making up that fact. So they need a way of testing with reality, and that's coming. Like there are multimodal LLMs.
0: It, it is. It is very similar to that. I haven't used Chat GPT, but I've read about it, and I, yeah, Chat GPT is very similar. It'll come up with this stuff that seems to be so convincing and logical, and it makes sense and all that. But if you look If you look beneath the surface a little bit, it's like it's smoke and mirrors. There's nothing there.
1: You can ask it, Who is Dennis McKenna? And it'll say, He is the brother of Terrence McKenna, an astronaut from the 1950s. It'll say so assertively that you're like, Oh, great. This is absolutely correct. Yeah. In some sense, you're a psychonaut. So partially correct. That's
0: exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, yeah, we have to be. I mean, ultimately, you know, Kurt, we have to trust our own. Our ourselves, you know. I mean, you, I mean, you can't. You have it's. You're the final judge, you know, of uh whether these things make sense or not, you know. But it. But that said, you can certainly test it. You know, science, as an example, comes up with theories and hypotheses, models of phenomena, and so on that you test by. Asking questions of nature in a very systematic way that can be tested. The, the mm-hmm. hypothesis, you know, you create a model of a process or something. Uh, and then you don't try to prove the theory, you try to disprove the theory. That's what sets science apart from, say, religion or dogma or other types of doctrine. You know, everything is provisional you have to you come up with an idea say okay does this fit with the data and what part of the data does it not explain you know and that's the scientific process and you can use that same process pretty much in your own thinking about uh these ideas that you make you may come up with from psychedelic experiences you know and then science also you know another thing about science is it's imperfect and it's flawed, but but there's also a community of like-minded people. you know, there's the peer review you know the peer review process as 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 flawed as it is is useful because you come up with your hypothesis and you put it out there, you describe it as closely as you can but you may have overlooked things. So you publish a paper or you get reviewers and they come back and they say, well, you know, here's the problem or here's what it doesn't explain. That is useful. So then you can either, uh, you know, you can just throw the idea out completely. If it's seriously flawed or you could say, well, wait a minute, we have to back up and tweak it a little bit and change <laughs> some premises of the hypothesis and, you know, thank you for identifying the gaps in our ideas and so on. So, so cognitively, cognitive functioning is a similar process. I mean, it's not a uh, in, in in science; it's formalized, you know. But just in ordinary life, you can approach something that way as well. You know, like you have to keep your you have to keep your antennas tuned, (laughs) you know, that's, that's a big part of it.
1: Yeah. I talked about this with Carl Friston, actually, this very topic of the dangers, which is not talked about much, the perils of investigations into consciousness, because people who watch this channel, people like you, people like myself, we're extremely curious people, curious about nature, whether our nature and nature are, well, what's the relationship between that as well. And, These are fun questions, even funny, like you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. You brought up something that's super interesting, which I I never thought about. The communal aspect of science. So often we think of the generalization of the East as being much more inclusive and collective and the West is individualistic and that the East is naturopathic and the West is allopathic. And those are generalizations because the East has developed cancer treatments and the West has developed probiotics. So it's not entirely correct. It, right. And I've never thought about science as being a community. Like I think of indigenous tribes and in other parts of the world as being extremely communal. That's a super, super interesting point.
0: Oh, it's very much a community. It's very much a community because, you know, it's about the development of these models, these theoretical models. These are everything is a model. And so the community is the like the first uh, sort of before you can, I mean, most of the world at large is not informed enough to make judgment on a lot of work, a lot of scientific work. It's too complicated and specialized, but people in your field, you know, those are the first people that you have to bounce this stuff up off of because they're educated. They know about it. They're working in the same field. So so, you know, it it, I mean, there's a great deal of value toward for in the review process. You know, the review process in a lot of ways it is uh, is very flawed, you know, but the idea is a good idea. You know, and that's why people have conferences and they go and they present their ideas and you know, somebody comes up with something, somebody else gets up after the lecture and denounces them and say, you know, you're full of shit. Here's why, <laughs> or or you know, it's a brilliant it's a brilliant insight, doctor. You know, whatever <laughs> that's the way it works.
1: <laughs> While we didn't have time to get to these questions in the podcast itself, I asked Dennis over email some fan questions, some audience questions. Number one: Are there any gender differences in the experiences of people who take psychedelics? This one comes from a woman fan of yours, Dennis.
2: On the question of whether there are any Gender differences in psychedelic experiences, of course, there are, because men's and women's brains are constructed differently. I don't know of any studies on this. Um, The player probably out there, it just stands to reason that the experience is different. would be interesting to explore in more depth.
1: Great. Number two, who should not implement or experiment with the use of psychedelics and why?
2: Well, obviously, anyone with a proclivity to psychosis should probably avoid it. Perhaps sociopaths and megalomaniacs should stay away from it as well. People who are not prepared should not take it to be approached thoughtfully.
1: Okay, great, and now number three, this is a quotation. After my experience in the 70s, I found I leaned toward the quote attributed to Kerouac after a trip, which is that walking on water wasn't invented in a day. Does Dennis have any thoughts on that? Sincerely, Bob Fenstermaker.
2: I'm not sure what to make of the question three about walking on water. I think maybe he is referring to the idea of the psychedelics or a shortcut or something. They are not there just as as much of discipline was in the other spiritual disciplines, if approached correctly.
1: Thanks, Dennis. And now number four, we talk about oneness, though there's a loving aspect to disunity. That is, just as there's a danger to treating everyone as different, there's also a danger to abstracting to the point of undifferentiation. Thus, there's some propitious middle ground, a vice associated with each and a virtue at the middle. Can you talk about some of the salutary aspects of separation?
2: I don't have much to say about question four. There is something to be said for separation in its appropriate time and place. For example, separation is what defines the self, the individual, and sometimes we want that we can't be unified with the cosmos at all times. We won't get much done that way.
1: So Dennis, it was an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I love the conversation. I loved speaking with you. Like, man, well, thank you, firstly. And what's next for you? And where can the audience find out? Well,
0: more? I don't know. I've got a conference coming up in Oregon uh, in July, uh, some kind of psilocybin-oriented conference. And and that's about it. You know, I continue working on McKenna Academy things, uh, we don't have time to go into it, but uh, people can look at the uh, at the website and and look at biognosis. This is what we're you know, this is what we're
1: biognosis. Working. yeah. I Bio- also have a term called abygenosis. So we both use that term. Basically, what will science develop to? It's like science
0: 2.0. Yeah. biognosis. I think I got it spelled wrong. Sorry. S-I-S. There's a tab on the website. This, this is nothing, this is really not about psychedelics at all, but this is more about ethnobotany and a project we've got going to try to uh, upgrade and develop this herbarium in, in Peru that I've worked with the people there for almost 50 years. We're trying to make a scientific resource for it that'll bring traditional knowledge and scientific knowledge together and we're looking for support we need support for this and we are a 501c3 the mckenna academy is a 501c3 nonprofit, so we can give people tax deductions for their donations and have a look at the website and we're starting a new podcast series also by the way
1: all right uh, what's it called
0: it's going to be called the Brain Forest Cafe.
1: Okay, that's great. And when?
0: So let us know. I it, it should be up any day now. I'm not sure what's holding it up, but probably by the end of July, it will be up. We've got three or four already to go, and we have more in the, in the pipeline. So, so
1: if you enjoyed today's conversation with Dennis, which I imagine you have because you stayed all the way to the end, then visit the Brain Forest Cafe. I'll put a link to that in the description as well Please as Bionosis. That's a charity. It's a registered charity with the states. And so you can get tax deductions. Thank you so okay. much. I hope I get to speak with you again someday in person. Sure be
0: we Thank you so much for a live conversation. I had a great time.
1: Yeah, me as well. Thank you. And fellow Canadian, at least right now.
0: Okay, fellow Canadian.
1: The podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked that like button, now would be a great time to do so as each subscribe and like helps YouTube push this content to more people. You should also know that there's a remarkably active Discord and subreddit for Theories of Everything where people explicate toes, disagree respectfully about theories, and build as a community our own toes. Links to both are in the description Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm, which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. Last but not least, you should know that this podcast is on iTunes, it's on Spotify, it's on every one of the audio platforms. Just type in theories of everything and you'll find it. Often I gain from re-watching lectures and podcasts, and I read that in the comments. Hey, toll listeners also gain from replaying. So how about instead re-listening on those platforms? iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whichever podcast catcher you use. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting patreon.com slash Kurt and donating with whatever you like. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on Tow full-time. You get early access to ad-free audio episodes there as well. For instance, this episode was released a few days earlier. Every dollar helps far more than you think. Either way, your viewership is generosity enough.